Hey, Dan. Yeah. I was looking at our podcast analytics, and uh, though I think we're doing pretty good, I'd like to find some ways of expanding our audience. Well, it's funny you should ask me that this morning because I'm stepping up my efforts to get a big-name celebrity guest on the show. Are you talking about Will Arnett again? <sighs> I think, you know, I think that's a long shot. Yeah, yes and again, Will Arnett, Canadian, star of Arrested Development and 30 Rock, as you know, I already invited Arnett once to be on our podcast via Twitter. Now, he hasn't responded yet, which is totally okay because, you know, he's a really busy guy. So I'm stepping up Operation Arnett. Stepping up your campaign? Like, what are you talking about? Well, in my first tweet, I reminded him how similar we are. We're both from Toronto. We're both huge Toronto Maple Leafs fans. We both have a podcast. As you know, I'm a big fan of Smart List, the potty does with Jason Bateman and Sean Hayes. And he has tons of Winnipeg connections. Well, if I do remember correctly, uh, I think it's the 19th century, uh, his great-great-grandfather, I think, Louis Arnett uh, owned a dry goods store on Main Street. Oh, yeah, that's right. It it was called Arnett's Golden Lion. Uh, Does he have any other Winnipeg connections? Oh, you betcha. Now, it turns out that his production company is making a documentary on Winnipeg TV anchor turned bank robber Steve Vogelsang. Now, I met Vogelsang once, and that already puts me one degree of separation from Arnett. And now I'm going to unleash the one thing that big Hollywood stars cannot resist. The VIP gift bag. The gift bag? What the hell, Dan? Yeah. Each week for the next few weeks, I'm going to reveal a couple of items in the Operation Arnett celebrity gift bag. First, four dozen pierogies, handmade by authentic Ukrainian babas in the basement of a North End church. Then I'm going to be adding a sweatshirt from the Winnipeg Aboriginal Sport Achievement Center, the indigenous-themed Winnipeg Jet sweatshirt, which, as you know, is the bomb. And then there will be more... But I don't want to reveal too much right now. Uh, pierogies and sweatshirts. Uh, okay, I'm not sure this is going to get it done. And, you know, you're climbing a pretty steep hill here. Yeah, maybe. But there is more in the Operation Arnett gift bag, stuff you will not be able to resist. Will Arnett, if you're listening, and you know, he might be, be warned. You will be mine. Oh, yes, you will be mine. The Winnipeg Free Press proudly presents, in partnership with CJNU 93.7 FM, Negan and the Lone Ranger. Here are your hosts, Negan Sinclair and Dan the Lone Ranger Let. Welcome, everybody. It's another episode, yet another episode, they said it couldn't be done, of Negan and the Lone Ranger. Definitely said it couldn't be done. (laughs) We are now uh, well into the double digits. We're actually one episode into the double digits, but that double digits nonetheless. And uh, just, you know, I just, we were talking about this before we uh, started recording, and I just want to set the record straight because you opened up an enormous, painful divide, not just in the Indigenous community, but as we found out, in the non-Indigenous community, about whether or not you like raisins. It's, this is a controversy that seems to just persist. It's a controversy that has divided millions. And on top of that, I really think it's something that, well, is it interfering with reconciliation? Uh, well, and, and as I noted, because we, we, we brought producer and uh, station director 
uh, Adam Glenn into the conversation. It, it's a uh, it's a debate that extends beyond borders uh, and oh. cultures, and it's just yeah. And but you know, I want to get this on the record because you didn't do it before. You are pro raisin oh, or yeah. anti raisin? Undoubtedly, yeah. Like, how could you not respect elders? Like, in the <laughs> little fruit shriveled world, elders in the fruit world. The raisins are the elders, and anyone who doesn't like raisins is really anti-elder. You're kind of you're ageist. Well, I love raisins too. Uh, now Adam revealed that he doesn't like raisins, but then we quickly deduced, Adam, and correct me if I'm wrong here, you're eating the wrong kind of raisins. See, this is this is exactly what happened to me, folks. I was introduced to raisins as a child by the wrong kind of raisin, and I didn't know such a thing was possible, but. Uh, Sun-made raisins, Californian oh, raisins, other good yeah, brands are, of they, course, available. They are the lesser than raisins. They are the lesser than raisins, yeah, but, I'm going to say. But those ones, those big yellow ones... I Sultanas. Think from Australia or Sultanas. something like There's those something beautiful about amazing. them. But when, when the dark raisins, which, by the way, come from North America, right? Um, Turtle Island here, they, when they're cooked, they become the most amazing raisin, too. So there's actually a Manitoba, an indigenous Manitoba raisin? Well, there's raisins from this side of the world. Isn't there? Oh, well, there's, yeah. there's wild Manitoba grapes. Yeah. So, That's I mean, thing. like, okay. If anybody out there has a recipe for how to turn Manitoba grapes into raisins, bring it on. We may turn the podcast over to you for an entire episode. <laughs> <laughs> um, I think it's more probably Vancouver, but yeah. Hey, okay. And as, as thoroughly enjoyable as the raisin debate is, um, we are also carrying the burden of current events uh, this week on the podcast, and in particular, like governments, yeah. Well, you know, and it's government burden becomes our burden because of what we choose to talk about. Um, and so this week, we noticed that uh, both Manitoba's government and the federal Liberal government in Ottawa were both walking things back. They were both they were trying to make amends, revisioning, yeah. uh, refocusing, and yeah. in the case of Manitoba's government. Uh, quite aggressively uh, handing out the goodies heading on to the provincial election in October. To be more specific, they are trying to buy our love in the prelude to the uh, upcoming election. Um, Now, uh, just by way of explanation, governments pass budgets in the first quarter of the calendar fiscal year, which is the last quarter of the uh, government fiscal year. And uh, in it, there are hundreds of individual funding announcements. So they don't do it all on budget day and they kind of roll out the funding announcements all year long. So even in October, November, December, you may be hearing the government announce money. It was all in the budget, right? So it's not a, it's not new money. A week ago though, the Manitoba government passed a, a special warrant for an $850 million expenditure for a whole range of things. Now, for those of you keeping score at home, that is new money. That is income tax and sales tax windfall. Because uh, if you're in government, I will tell you, inflation rocks. If uh, politicians tell you they don't like inflation, uh, they're lying because inflation means higher wages, means higher prices, which means more taxes collected. And so governments in this country are flush. So $850 million uh, of uh, windfall tax money, own source revenue, uh, infrastructure projects, support to municipalities, $200 million in, in payments to uh, individuals to yeah. soften the blow. Individual from, yeah. checks, yeah, yeah, saying the soften the blow for, you know, the fact the bread is more, costs more, the gas to heat your houses costs more. I mean, this is the kind of uh, real radical 
uh, aggressive. <laughs> uh, this is what happens when you have just consecutive austerity uh, budgets, cut, 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 and then uh, it, you make, it makes you look incredibly... I suppose, generous or, or softens the blow coming into a provincial election. Yeah. So I want you to do the math on this with me. Okay. So uh, public education for six years was funded below the rate of inflation. And every year when we uh, pressed the government for why they were doing that, they, they said, they tried to say we were giving public education the amount of money that they needed. Uh, and, you know, teachers and parents and others were running around with waving their arms in the air talking about how bad the state of public education had become. This year, uh, the, the conservatives reveal a six, more than a 6% bump in education funding, which is uh, uh, a huge amount of money. Uh, to pump into it. And uh, the education minister, uh, uh, Wasco's uh, explanation was that they wanted to help soften the blow of property tax increases from the education portion. Okay, so let's get this straight here. So for six years, they didn't fund education properly. And as a result, our property taxes went up because the school divisions were forced to charge more uh, and then what they did is they offered us property tax rebates on the on the education portion. And finally, they're coming in in the seventh year with a big funding increase to soften the blow of property taxes. Uh, you know, I'm sort of seeing that, that maybe, I'm just thinking maybe funding at the rate of inflation all the way along would have accomplished the same thing without six years of uh, degradation of the school system. And kind of back and forth and... And, you know, for those of you who have a school, school-aged child and watched the ways in which schools limped their way through the pandemic, and then all the other issues that came out around the issues of infrastructure in the schools that they just are incapable of providing basic safety for children, uh, just in terms of ventilation alone, mm-hmm. uh, space in between, uh, never mind all the other things that have been cut, you know, gymnasiums, planned gymnasiums have, that have been cut by this government, uh, just really unbelievable ways in which you cut, 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 and then try to come in in an effort to get reelected. So at the same time, it's, I hope people see, I also, you know, I'm pleased to see that funding does eventually catch up and the yin and the yang, as it were, does happen. But mm-hmm. it's also very frustrating to watch. Uh, and speaking of frustration, I mean, <laughs> look at uh, the ways in which, this is what happens when you introduce really bad legislation uh, and you expect a backbencher to, uh, front what was uh, a generally publicly unfavorable policy. The Trudeau Liberals federally uh, introduced Bill C-21 uh, way back last summer, uh, and then uh, it was a gun legislation. Uh, it's well needed, uh, especially to deal with the issue of assault. It, well, it initially focused on handguns. Yeah, that's right. And then well, extended to, for the most part. And then, to and then a few months ago, uh, they had a backbencher uh, introduce several amendments to the bill as it was going through committee, uh, which then introduced in what they call uh, bans on long guns or particularly rifles. Now, rifles, of course, are mostly used by rural people, farmers, and then also indigenous peoples. And so talk about stepping in it uh, because you took what was generally a favorable policy, particularly around the urban, the, uh, urban vote. And now what you did is you turned the rural 
And, and, you know, this is the old conservative liberal divide. And so what happened was, is not only did they, it was a bad legislation, it it really is a constitutional issue because Indigenous peoples, uh, anytime you get impacted on your livelihood, uh, that's an Aboriginal treaty, right? Section 35 of the Constitution. So the Trudeau Liberals introduced legislation that would, wouldn't even pass that legal test. And then on top of that, everybody's mad at them. Yeah, you know, um, if you're uh, passionate about gun control, and uh, I mean, I, I, a lot of Canadians are passionate about gun control. I'm from Toronto. You know, uh, right now, Toronto, it's just a, it's an epidemic of, uh, of gun violence in Toronto. Um, most of my family lives uh, sort of in the west end of the greater Toronto, uh, uh, you know, area. And, uh, you know, we go to Port Credit, Mississauga to see family. Quite often we end up at a shopping mall. Mississauga Square One is the big mall in that part of the city. And there's been like two firefights in the food court of Mississauga Square One. So, I mean, you know, it is a real problem. And so if if you think it's important, think of yourself as a liberal voter. Um, You really want more gun control. You want to see government do more. And so they introduce a piece of legislation, and then they, I would, you know, F-bomb it up. And and so, like, this is where taking a good idea and ruining it through – you know, arrogance, uh, you I think know, they oversight, thought they could naivety. And, and they yeah. thought they could look tough on crime as a result. But what they've done now, because they've had to walk back that part of the legislation, uh, they look absolutely like sitting ducks. And Pierre Polyev has been saying that they demanded this. I mean, Polyev, you could say he gave some public pressure, but it's generally, I think, the legal issue involving Indigenous peoples. Then on top of that, the fact that just really bad legislation. And, you know, the, this wasn't going to really re- reduce gun violence um, by reducing the use of rifles. That's not the main issue. There are deaths, but the main issue is assault-style uh, handguns, which are in cities. And, and rifle, assault-style rifles. Uh, uh, yeah. That's right. Yeah, yeah. Automatic ones and so on. Yeah. So this is a good example of governments out there uh, don't add in... Uh, silly amendments as you go along the way, especially when you've done all this public relations work ahead of time to try to pass a bill. Yeah, you know, and this is so. This is the question that's hanging in the air for me. I mean, right now the Trudeau government is only—it's a minority mandate, so they're only alive because of the good graces of the NDP, the federal NDP. So they need the NDP's support to do anything in government. Now, I don't really think I'm making an earth-shattering political strategy observation to say that people in this country know that the uh, NDP, both provincially and federally, they walk a very fine philosophical line on the gun control debate. They try to be pro-gun control on things like handguns, but because of their uh, rural representation, their affinity uh, with and for Indigenous people and the support that they get from Indigenous communities, they are also not as passionate, like not as uh, in a scattered approach as the Liberals. They're much more strategic about their gun control. There is no possible way the Liberals could have consulted with their dance partners in a minority parliament on this. Because if they did, the NDP could have saved them the grief and said, you know what? Uh, Like, yeah, you can do that if you want to ruin this bill. Yeah, go right ahead. Yeah, because we're not going to support it. But, you know, like if if you don't want to, and I'll abuse the obvious metaphor, if you don't want to blow your own head off on this thing, then, you know, 
don't do it. Think about not doing it. <laughs> I mean, my colleague, uh, JP Tasker at uh, CBC, made a really good point, and I've been thinking about this for a while now, and I think it touches upon what you just said, which is that the federal liberals have a real problem, and it's an electoral problem, uh, and I think it might be also a good reminder of the Manitoba Conservatives in an opposite way. The problem with the federal Liberals is they are almost exclusively an urban party. Within cabinet, none of their ministers, major ministers, are rural representatives. And so, like you pointed out, they need the NDP to give them that rural perspective because then what happens is they do crappy legislation that really is focused only on urban sentiments. I think the Manitoba Conservatives are in the kind of an oppositional boat in that they've lost Winnipeg mm -hmm. and most of the voices, major voices within the party are rural. And if they don't uh, have an imagination of what that looks like, and particularly the issue that there's about a dozen seats in Winnipeg that's going to decide this upcoming provincial election, if they don't start to have at least an urban and a rural sensibility, they're really going to be in trouble. Yeah, this also, uh, the withdrawal of the bill um, and and the mud that's left clinging uh, to the prime minister's face um, is only increasing the questions within the Liberal Party about whether he's the guy for the next election. Now, it, it, in some ways, like he's still so useful, youthful. <laughs> he's well, still we, he's, he's still so dishy, right? He's and my it, age, you know, like. <laughs> Well, okay. Well, let's not get into identifying ages, okay? Because that's like that's not really. You, I'm doing this is not on TV, so that people might think we're kind of the same age. Who knows? But uh, no. But it, like really, like he's been leader of the Liberal Party and Prime Minister for a very long time. But I mean, he still looks youthful. It's sometimes hard to forget he's been in it a long time, and he's reached that stage of gestation for political leaders where people start to go. You know, is this really the guy? Is he the person we want? And, you know, and I'll tell you, like, um, this is a beautiful metaphor for everything that people think is wrong about, about Justin Trudeau. They think that uh, he is tone deaf, can't write, uh, read the room, he's arrogant, uh, doesn't care about what other people think, doesn't seek other opinions. You know, like that. that is the, hey, Brian Pallister, if you're out there listening, you know, I think you, you may have heard some of this criticism. <laughs> you know, how did that end? Well, it ends with people in your own party pushing you out. And, uh, you know, honestly, he is not making a case for being the guy, the leader, uh, you know, to take this party into the next election. It seems like every time the liberals reach a certain crescendo, they're in this situation where they uh, they step in it. I mean, with the McKinsey scandal and so on, that the liberals uh, start getting bloated and full of themselves. And in this case, it's really been focused on Justin Trudeau. And and he's not my age. I was I stand corrected. He's slightly older than me. But I'll leave uh, our listeners oh. to look up that date of his. Okay. Uh, he's closer to your age, probably. Speaking of way mm -hmm. older than me. And moving on. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so, on so to, uh, chaps, I will just say, yeah. best thing you can do with age is you just take the two digits and add them together, and that's your age. Oh, jeez. Okay. Uh, no, then no, I'm, no. I'm prepubescent then. That's good. That's okay. good. So, Dan, if I'm right, you're, you're 14 going on six. Oh, <laughs> uh, jeez. Okay, on that Work note, it out, folks. Uh, we have a, uh, a yeah, great show you know this what? Week. Did, I, this will be remembered at some point. Okay, uh, I'm coming for revenge you now, is coming. So, yeah. uh, we have a great show this week. Uh, yes, we do. Our colleague uh, at the Winnipeg Free Press, Shelley Cook, 
is our storyteller. Uh, she's done just some, I mean, since she's joined the free press, I mean, she's made some great inroads and some great splashes in our, uh, in our newsroom and then also throughout the paper. Um, and uh, we also have a very special feature interview. Yeah, we're going to be talking with uh, Manitoba NDP leader Wab Canoe, who is, if you believe polls, and I, you know, I uh, I remain non-committal about the results of the next provincial election. But polls would tell us that this is the man who would be premier, our next premier of the province. So we're uh, actually going to give him his first job interview today. I'm more going to talk about the fact that I knew him when he was a kid. Okay, well, I can't claim that, but, you know. I'm Anyways, <laughs> <laughs> on with Shelley Cook and then uh, our feature interview with Wab Canoe. Enjoy. Hi, my name is Shelley Cook. I am a columnist and the manager of the Reader Bridge at the Winnipeg Free Press. And this is The Storytellers. I've been asked today to tell you a story about my best experience at the Free Press. And so we're just going to take it from the beginning. Um, my best experience is getting this gig because I never thought in a million years that I would be writing for the Winnipeg Free Press. Um, and I guess to kind of cap, I guess that's not the right word. I guess to kind of, you know, look at this whole thing, um, there are some days where the deadline approaches and I am scrounging for ideas, um, banging my head against a table and just kind of wondering what the heck I'm going to write about. And then there are other times that either my story or other people's stories come to me and it's very easy. Um, in any case and in every case, though, it is always a privilege to be able to write this column and to just have a platform um, and to have people read it. Like it's honestly an honor and one that I don't take lightly. But anyway, I guess my best experience at the Winnipeg Free Press is when I got the gig. It all started uh, in 2020. It was the summer. I had been laid off from my other job. And when I first got laid off, it was the worst thing in the world. I think I cried for two days because I was so scared. And because I had worked there for um, my whole adult life, I didn't realize that could happen um and I know it happened to a lot of people so um you know it was a scary time anyway um lucky enough for me um I was able to spend some time with my kids during that time and that summer there was one day that we went to the beach and a couple days before this I had tweeted that I was going to start writing I mean I had the time right so I tweeted that and lo and behold, while I'm at the beach, I get this message on Twitter, this direct message on Twitter from Paul Simon, the editor of the Winnipeg Free Press. He's like, hey, Shelly, I saw your tweet. Something along these lines, like, don't quote me, but he was like, hey, do you want a column in the paper? And I thought somebody was pranking me. Like, I was like, no way. So I go and I check the profile and lo and behold, it's verified. Um, holy crap. So I'm like, yes, yes, I do. I had to submit some writing samples and other editors had to kind of see if I passed the vibe check, essentially. And I did. And I'm super lucky and I'm super grateful and I'm super, super happy that I did. I've been there for almost two years. Um, and, 
you know, I'm just I'm really happy to have this platform and to be able to share my perspective. It's not always right. Uh, last week, I made a grammatical error. Um, and I, you know, I appreciate uh, and I'm a bit embarrassed about all the people who corrected me. But, you know, this is what it, we're here for, right? I'm having a blast. Super happy to be here. And I'm super, super grateful for anybody who takes time to read my stuff. We have in studio here at CGNU, NDP leader, Wab Canoe. Wab, welcome to Nikon and the Lone Ranger. Welcome to Riding the Trail with us. Thank you so much for having me. I mean, <laughs> you've had some illustrious guests, Gary Dewar, Angela Matheson. So my question is, what am I doing here? We've <laughs> <laughs> uh, you invite invited you to come on the trail with us, and uh, but you know, most importantly, we have to. Uh, you know, I want to disclose that we've been we've been friends for a long time, and also that I've known you since really we've been kids, and our family's been friends. And, uh, and well, I went to like uh, preschool with your sister. That's right, right. So back in the Ojibwe immersion back days. Back in the 80s. That's right, the dark days of the 80s. Uh, and Dan has also something to, that he has to disclose. Uh, yes, well, uh, my son uh, helps to coach the, the Kelvin boys high school hockey team, and uh, Wob's son, Dom, is the captain of there said you go. team. And uh, furthermore, uh, I'm a hockey referee in that league, and I have, on occasion, at least one occasion, given Dom a penalty. Well, so that's the most important. For the record, thing. my son is much more of a, a playmaker than a goon. I just, <laughs> want, I just want to set the record straight. No, it wasn't. Uh, no, no, it wasn't. It wasn't a goony penalty at all. Like you know, it might have been a hook or a trip or something like that. But there was a, there was an extra ten minute misconduct uh, when he decided to give me his full and uh, unabridged opinion of my call and that was so there was a little what extra are you up to later <laughs> what are your plans this evening <laughs> that's that right sort of yeah thing. dinner reservations <laughs> yeah. no so uh but yeah like it's uh you know and well as long as we got all that out of the way and uh, now yeah. we've we're and for the record the i have always tried to tease you in public whenever <laughs> oh, we cross paths we we're going to escape without right, that right? but so, uh, that's okay too so there you go Nina. uh, <laughs> uh so let's get down to business here. Uh, we, you know, we talk a lot about uh, politics here on the Negon Lone Ranger podcast, and particularly, um, you know, looking at your party at the moment. Uh, it is. We were saying earlier before we taped today. It is virtually a brand new party, mm. uh, almost exclusively brand new from uh, the Greg Selinger, Gary Dewar days. The only people that you have left from those days are really Matt Weeb, who's also fairly young, and then of course Jim, longtime MLA Jim Malloway. Uh, what would you say to you know looking at the other two parties, the Conservatives, while having a number of people who have turned away or are not going to run again, they're still old guard in many ways. Mm -hmm. um, and of course, Liberals, jo John Gerard's been voted in for how many years now? Two decades plus. Uh, you have arguably the youngest party in the province. What would you say to Manitoba and looking in the many ways and handing potentially, if the polls suggest, a government of all new people? I think we've worked really hard to build the team that we have today. And um, we have a, a team that I think is credible, hardworking, and, and talented. Um, we have 18 MLAs on our team from all walks of life and uh, all different parts of the province. We represent all of northern Manitoba. I'm very happy that we represent two-thirds of the landmass of the province. Um, and we have people who are 
nurses, teachers, you know, people who are active in the community, people who uh, worked in the business world, things like that. And so for me, I think we have a very strong team that also represents the province. And I think that it's really hard to renew a political operation. And I say that as somebody who underwent that project of renewing a party that needed renewal. A lot of good things that the Manitoba NDP did over the years. Uh, you know, we think about uh, the Crown Corporations uh, that make life more affordable here. We think about the Human Rights Code in Manitoba. We think about French language rights. Manitoba NDP governments have done a lot of good for the province over the years. But, you know, it was time to bring in a new generation of NDP MLAs and uh, voices within the party. And that, you know, I think part of that work happened in 2016 when Nahani and Tom Lindsay and myself came into the caucus room. And then we took a big step in 2019 when we elected 11 new MLAs. Um, And like the vast majority of the new faces in the last election were on our side of the house. And now we're heading into this election where those folks who were new in 2019 are now seasoned and experienced and know the ropes, so to speak, of both the legislature, but also how do these political things that we talk about affect the people of Manitoba. And so I do think that we have uh, a good mix of uh, experience. You know, we're able to call on some of the the voices um, of folks who know what it takes to run a government successfully in Manitoba, while also recognizing, you know, politics has changed over the past five Mm -hmm. years, 10 years, 20 years. And we've got folks who understand those newer dynamics, if you will, as well. So, you know, it's, um, if the polls are to be believed, and that's always the caveat, right, when you, Absolutely. Uh, you talk. But, you know, the, you're, you're going through an absolutely unprecedented period where your party is leading the governing party, the progressive conservatives, by an incredibly large margin. And I couldn't find another era in Manitoba politics where an opposition party was that far ahead of the governing party, uh, let's say 12 months uh, to go to an election. And uh, I'm just going to take another small diversion here. I've talked over and over and over again with Gary Dewar Mm. about who spent 11 years in opposition before he got his big chance in 99. But I remember him talking about the fact that he was thankful that the NDP and the progressive conservatives ran neck and neck in polls leading up to the election. Because he said, you know, we didn't suffer under the the incredible burden of expectation. I didn't have trouble well, keeping thanks, my... Thanks, Gary. Yeah. <laughs> really raising the stakes. Yeah, that, that, that's right. But, you know, that, that he didn't have to work to keep his team sharp. I mean, everybody knew they were, they were sort of in a dogfight. And um, so, but that's not the situation you're in. You really, your party now does suffer from this incredible burden of expectation. So uh, how do you keep the party chart? Like, how do you speak to new Democrats about what's going on in the polls and, and translate that into their best effort going forward? Well, I think first and foremost, it's about putting the people of Manitoba front and center in our thoughts. And it, I think it's, it's clear that many people in Manitoba want to change in government. Mm-hmm. And with that in mind, and us as the viable alternative to uh, the PCs, we have to say that we owe it to the people of Manitoba to win this next election. And what we have to do as a team in order, and I mean both like the elected members of our team, but also the people behind the scenes, the people who are going to volunteer in our campaign, what we have to do is continue to put in the work and to stay humble and maintain the attitude of being hungry 
so that we maintain that hectic and intense uh, pace of work that it's going to take. Because changing a government is not an easy feat, no matter no. what the polls say. And so one of the things that I always tell our team, and this is a very honest thing, is not a single vote has been cast. Like we haven't even had the chance to vote for ourselves yet. And so there's still a ton of uh, runway before we actually get to election day in Manitoba this year. And to be frank, there is a scenario in which the PCs could still win this next election. And that scenario is if progressive voters don't turn out. And one of the biggest dangers of having progressive voters not turn out is if they feel that this thing is in the bag. And you, I'm sure you could ask Mr. Dewar about that. He oh, had yeah. uh, run-ins with that over his time no, uh, for as sure. premier. And so for us, we just have to send a message to Manitobans, progressive people who are open to us, and just say, listen, we got to work together in order to change uh, the government in Manitoba this year. Well, but I mean, also at the same time, uh, it isn't really, I mean, we were talking as all the polls. I mean, polls time and time again have been shown to be faulty, particularly on the ways in which who's polled and wet damn a day and those kinds of things. I mean, if you just take the past two by-elections as an example, so White Ridge, uh, where Abby Kahn mm-hmm. uh, was victorious, and then uh, in Kirkfield Park, where Kevin Klein sort of razor sh- razor thin pulled that one out. Uh, we were trying to figure out this morning, just over 100 votes. Uh, 136. 136 votes. Uh, and so it, it really is, it still is very much a question of, I think, uh, Manitoba voters are still trying to figure out whether they want that shift or whether they want to send a message to the Conservatives, but then keep them in some kind of measure of power. Uh, Kirkfield Park was a really interesting case study. I mean, Dan wrote a lot about this. Yeah, so um, I, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to use the, uh, the journalist prerogative, being the devil's advocate, because sure. I've talked to a lot of people in the, conser- the PC party and in your party about what happened in Kirkfield Park. And so if I boil it down... The Tories are shocked that they won. Mm-hmm. That they are uh, like I. I, I think that spin. Uh, well, I, I'm telling like <laughs> I had people on the ground, yeah. like on election night, who were uh, basically working on the how they were going to spin the loss. Mm-hmm. And I similarly talked to a lot of people on the ground on election night in your party. Um, I, I think the prevailing theory in your party is that that was a missed opportunity. And that that you didn't quite run the campaign you needed to run in, for that by election to pull pull that out. Now everybody loves to be Monday morning quarterbacks mm-hmm. when there's an election loss, but would you sort of acknowledge at the very least? You just mentioned the there is a scenario. Uh, I think that you saw that scenario play out in Kirkfield Park. I disagree, but what I would say first off is that I would take seriously what you're putting forward. Yep. And that's definitely the sort of thing that we do as a, as a debrief afterwards. What can we learn from what we just went through here? Here's the scenario that I see that played out in Kirkfield Park. Gary Dewar, the master of Manitoba politics, didn't win that seat until 2007, his third try as premier. So he won the premiership in 99, didn't win Kirkfield Park. Won again in 2003, didn't win Kirkfield Big Park. Yeah. 2007, the biggest majority that he won as premier, that's when Kirkfield Park fell into the win column for the Manitoba NDP. So why am I saying that? Because uh, here's how I take this by-election result and what it means for us at the start of an election year 2023. You're telling me that we're within 136 votes of where Gary Dewar was in 2007? I'll take that as a starting point for an election year. And so... 
By that, I mean to say, let's look at the rest of the electoral map around the province. What else was happening when conditions were like that? Mm -hmm. And now let's make some decisions about how we're going to run this campaign this year in a targeted way, speaking to Manitobans across the province, but also devoting our energy to the areas where we need to be successful. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's got the numbers up here. I mean, really a Trump, pretty much a one-sided affair during those elections in 2007, 2011. Uh, well, 2011's fairly close, but uh, fair, pretty much 2007 is the big shift in that riding, and it certainly showed that it was, it's a, that riding's a bit of a litmus test for the province. And so it's something to certainly keep eye for. Mm -hmm. um, turning to, you know, tactics and uh, election, it would be remiss and impossible for us not to bring up the fact that the Tories have gone very hard on you in the past, um, been very personal. There's attack ads running right now. And the yeah. the fact is that uh, we 20% of Manitoba is Indigenous. Uh, one of every five people in the province, you know, depending on what number. And I, what I always say is Winnipeg's about <laughs> 17%, and then every time you go 100 kilometers north, it's another half percent until you reach. Uh, and, and so, you know, everybody in Manitoba is either working with, uh, sitting beside, or married to an Indigenous person. Uh, there's potential that you will be the first Indigenous Premier of a Manitoba, of our, sorry, of a Canadian province. First Nations, I would say. First yeah. Nations. John Norquay was uh, yes, of Métis, course, yeah. and uh, I'd argue Riel was also, of course, should yes, be considered course. the Premier uh, of Manitoba. First First Nations Premier, uh, which I think is a huge step forward for a province that has had uh, challenges in the past and continues to in terms of relationships. And if we just look next door at our neighbours in Saskatchewan, sometimes can be very violent in the relationships. Uh, do you think Manitoba's ready for a uh, First Nations Premier? And then on top of that, I, I think the fact is that the uh, uh, Tories have gone very hard on some of the more stereotypical issues when it comes to First Nations people and have used you as a figurehead for that. But I don't, I don't think that's where the people of Manitoba are at, though. I think the people of Manitoba are very uh, open-minded and feel good about our province. I think people like the fact Orange Shirt Day is probably the biggest day on the school calendar now. People applaud when they're at the Jets game and the land acknowledgement kicks things off before the opening ceremonies. And I think Manitobans feel good when they're like, yeah, we know we have challenges, but we also know that we've made a ton of progress as a people and as a, a community. And so I think for us, politically, you're asking about strategy. It's just going to be to remind people that aren't we glad about the things that we've been able to do together? Isn't this the Manitoba that we want to be a part of, the Manitoba that's inclusive? And isn't that going to be the best version of ourselves that we can show our kids? That, yeah, like it's great when an Indigenous person is doing representation for the Indigenous kids, but it's good for the non-Indigenous kids as well because they're growing up in a province where they're like, yeah, the captain of Kelvin's high school hockey team is a First Nations kid or one of the, you know, voices in the media that they see is a First Nations person, right? And that benefits the Indigenous child to be able to see, yep, I can do it too. But it benefits the non-Indigenous child as well to be like, yep, that's the province I live in. And of course, things should be that way. And I'd say that representation matters, uh, you know, in all the dimensions in which we see it. I am opposed to Avikan. Uh, politically and ideologically, but for him to be the first Muslim in cabinet is good for our province for the same reason. And, you know, if our team it gets elected, you're going to see, you know, first non-binary person on the government side. You're going to see other milestones reached. And I think all of those things are positives for Manitoba. When the Tories bring up uh, divisive issues and 
and they keep hammering it and whatever issue in the past they want to bring up for you. Mm -hmm. um, is that your approach to think of the bigger picture or to try to not deal or not engage or, I mean, you certainly have addressed those issues in the past. Well, for me, it's about the people of Manitoba rather than myself. So while the Tories <coughs> will continue to attack me using various angles, uh, I don't want to fall into the trap of talking about myself because that's not what this campaign is about. This campaign is about the people of Manitoba who actually has a real vision for healthcare in our province, who can do concrete things to make life more affordable, who's going to set the stage in the education world, not just for proper school funding, which is foundational, but also to ensure that our kids and grandkids are set up for their future success. Those are the areas that I need to talk about in order to be successful in this next election. And yes, I am going to draw a clear contrast between Heather Stephenson and myself, but where we focus on uh, the PC Premier, we'll be talking about the failures on the policy level, how they failed us uh, when we had to send ICU patients out of province how the school funding and underfunding has been a failure for our kids. And so I think for us, we are definitely going to answer any shot that's made against us, but we will do so by ensuring that we're talking about the people of this province rather than trying to make it about ourselves. Uh, you know, uh, uh, politics has changed quite a bit since 2007. Mm -hmm. I mean, and I, and I don't uh, actually disagree with your analysis of Kirkfield Park, um, except I think you should have won. Yeah. Uh, but other than that, um, but you and know, I think I should have yeah. won too. Like my goal <laughs> in politics is always Frank McKenna, yeah, who won every single seat in the New Brunswick, you know, legislature during one campaign. So as long as we're still looking at Steinbeck and Morden Winkler, I will always be pushing our team to aim higher. Yeah, you know, I, I actually remember the 2007 election yeah. when uh, Dewar took us to a backyard in Southdale to make an announcement. And uh, so the question was, like, why the heck are you in Southdale? And he went, we're going to win Southdale, and we're going to win Riel, and we're going to win St. River, and we're going to win Kirkfield Park. And I think I actually snickered. Right. And he came right at me. He said, you watch. <laughs> like, you, you know. And, uh, and he actually wouldn't answer another question. Like, after the news conference was over, he just kind of stormed off. And then on election night, when he was doing his speech, you know, he said, well, they told us <laughs> that we couldn't win. And he pointed right at me. Yeah. So, you know, like it, and how it, did you feel about that? Were you inclined to write a uh, column? Oh yeah, no, that? no. I mean, yeah. listen, uh, fair we didn't, is fair. No, yeah. we like uh, no. It was a lesson in, uh, in to, that I uh, try to keep in mind to this day when we talk to Gary. Is uh, I don't accept everything he says at face value, but I don't disagree with him anymore. Right. Uh, at least not publicly. Um, but you know, things have changed. Um, you know, the path for the NDP, let's say, to a majority mandate, which mm -hmm. is kind of the goal, it is. takes you through, obviously, a lot of seats in Winnipeg, uh, but it also takes you through seats in Brandon, Interlake, Gimli, uh, Selkirk, uh, Dauphin, uh, places where the NDP has deep, uh, you know, roots. Yep. Not yellow dog country, but seats right. where, you know, very rural, uh, mid-northern uh, seats. And, you know, and there's going to be other pieces on the on the chessboard uh, in this election. There's going to be keystone candidates in a lot of those ridings. And it, it occurred to me, although they've kind of made it out like they're after the Tory vote, but you really can't slice it quite that – you can't make that simple 
sort of surgical cut and just say that they're because obviously they're going to appeal to a lot of they are going to appeal to a lot of rural voters. You, you sort of see them as opening up a new front in the campaign that you need to uh, uh, wage in those ridings. You know, I think rural man, it does change the dynamic. Yes. And uh, I think rural Manitoba is um, really interesting politically because Healthcare is far and away the biggest issue, and that is an area where the the PCs have just not done a good job Mm -hmm. for rural Manitoba or for anyone in the province. And we continue to see these hospital closures and health center closures, you know, just one in in Glenboro uh, this past week, coming shortly after the one in Ericsdale and Wawanisa and so on uh, goes the list. And so I think for us, the primary goal regardless of the partisan or ideological affiliation for folks in some of these writings that you're talking about is to talk about healthcare. And I've found that people want to be able to be within a short drive of a doctor, a short drive of uh, a a hospital to be able to get a a paramedic out to their house, whether that's in a, a small town or on a farm. People want those services close to home. And I've noticed that that's a very powerful way that's able to uh, allow us to talk to some folks um, in many parts of the province, including in areas where people may have traditionally voted conservative. And, you know, healthcare is such an important issue for us that we're going to keep talking about it. And I do think that that's going to allow us to open the door with some of these folks, even if maybe we're not necessarily uh, talking about your traditional Manitoba NDP voter in no. some of these rural rural settings. Still, I think the, the thing, I know that because when I talk to progressive conservatives, they're concerned about this, though, that it, it's, it's an unknown and somewhat irrational fight because you're talking about people that uh, have kind of retreated to single issue or maybe one or two issues that they want to fight on. And I mean, like they're going to, they, I mean, because you're going to hear it, you, your candidates are going to be at all candidates meetings with members of the Keystone Party talking about mass mandates and vaccine mandates and, you know, the violation of civil liberties and all this other stuff that isn't, in my opinion, not really rooted in reality. But you know what? That's the, I mean, the fe- the federal election, we saw that. We happen. saw it in the municipal too. Absolutely. I would argue. Yeah. School board, yeah. trustee so candidates, So how, how do you combat, how do you, how do you devise a strategy to, to compete against that? Well, I think we have to keep talking about healthcare because I think that is one of the shared common grounds that we still have. Healthcare and education are two of the areas and that applies to rural Manitoba as well as it does in the city. Folks in uh, communities across rural Manitoba want to keep healthcare services close to home, and they want to have a say in the education of kids in their community, including keeping schools open in their own uh, backyards. And so I think that's the way in. And then once we have an audience that's willing to listen to us on those topics, then I think that we are going to be working really hard to persuade them that our plan is, is the right one to meet the needs of the community. But what I would say, this topic raises for me is if you're a conservative, what are you voting for today? What does a PC party stand for other than being opposed to us, the Manitoba NDP? Because if you're a social conservative, even the social conservatives like James Teitzma are not talking about uh, those issues. So that's off the table. So what are you, what are you voting for the blue team for? Well, if it's, if you're a fiscal conservative, this is this government's spending more money than anyone ever before, and they're doing it in an irresponsible manner, I would say, in a lot of areas. 
So you're not voting for fiscal conservatism. So what is it actually that you're supporting when you're saying that you're a, a PC voter in Manitoba today? And if you are struggling to articulate your answer to that, well, hey, we're going to be balanced when it comes to the books. We're going to be moderate, common sense, pragmatic, should we get the great opportunity to govern this province. So why not give us a chance? Listen to what we have to say on healthcare, on education. And uh, I think you'll like what you hear. But there, I mean, one thing they do have the corner on, the blue side, as you using your term there, the blue team, um, is ideological conservative. I mean, that's that's the, I think that's where a lot of people hit on and really think about. And one thing that's... But it, think, but what is that other than what Pierre well, Kualiev is posting on social media? I'll give you one example. You know what I mean? That's I think kind of the question that I'm trying to get at. Oh, 100%. And, and you know, I think... One thing that you've been criticized about or perhaps the party's been criticized about is around the issue of drug use or the issue of injection or safe injection. I can think of Brian Pallister famously taking the report of safe injection sites. And, and, you know, cards on the table, I've come out very clear to support safe injection sites. I work with the Mama Bear Clan in downtown Winnipeg. And he threw it on the ground, just to close the anecdote. He threw it it on the ground because he... Loud thud. the, The position of... The Progressive Conservative Party in Manitoba is abstinence, abstinence, abstinence. Uh, we do not want anything other than banning uh, drug use of any kind, any amount, period. Uh, open up the jails, kind of, uh, because if you're going to carry drugs, then you're going to infect children and et cetera, et cetera. All that kind of ideological conservative uh, issues around around abstinence. Now, you've come out. And in 2019, there was a famous report talking about root causes of Manitoba's addiction mm-hmm. crisis. And and your position has been around the safe injection sites uh, and then also the uh, delegalization of small amounts of uh, certain substances. Uh, do you think that's, that's a good example of, I think, an ideological conservatism that uh, really plays really well in the rural areas? I don't know that it does because there are so many issues with addictions across Manitoba right now. Harm reduction came to public health policy in Manitoba in earnest from Swan River because the HIV epidemic outbreak that was happening in Saskatchewan across the border into the parkland region. And if you talk to people in rural Manitoba, you know, sure, people might not immediately embrace a supervised consumption site, but they do want action on addictions. And the PCs on addictions have been an utter failure to an extent that it might outstrip almost every other public policy area of their time in government. And if you want the proof for the fact that they've been failures on addictions, look at the amount of people who are dying. Look at the fact that we have congenital HIV and syphilis in Manitoba, conditions which are entirely preventable. And if you don't believe those stats, drive through downtown, drive through Brandon, drive through Dauphin, go to downtown Thompson. When you see people living in bus shacks, people living outside, when you see the visible manifestation of addictions in this province, you have to conclude that the current approach is a failure. And much like the PC's failure during the pandemic, where they failed to listen to the experts and listen to the evidence, that's what's happening here. They're not listening to the evidence. They're not listening to the experts. Because what the experts will tell you is that we need harm reduction. Mm -hmm. And a supervised consumption site, it's not a silver bullet. It's not going to turn the tide overnight. But it's one step among many others that we need to start taking in Manitoba so that we can get 
a uh, a handle on things. And so, I mean, obviously, uh, the PC Oppo research team is getting their quotes and stuff out uh, through the media, including uh, today. But uh, their message is going to be like, you know, what you read and print from some of these voices. And what I would say is this, like easier access, uh, you know, to drugs is absolutely not what we're talking about here. What we're talking about is giving kids a chance to stay alive. Because unfortunately, there are too many kids in our province who are struggling with addictions right now. And the current approach is failing them. So uh, are we going to keep arguing? these uh, conservative talking points that have no basis in reality? Or are we going to work together and start making sure more kids can see their 18th birthday, 25th birthday, 30th birthday? That's what I want to do. And I think the vast, vast majority of Manitobans agree. So, you know, seven years uh, is a long time. I mean, uh, objectively, it's, yeah. it's a long time, except maybe in Manitoba politics, okay. where uh, it's, um, y- you know, uh, um, there have been a few times where uh, governing parties have kind of run themselves out of government in less than seven years, but not a lot. Uh, and, um, you know, I, I think, you know, Gary Dewar and the Gary Dewar Democrats would say, you know, they benefited, like they, they, they were, became ready to govern after 11 years in opposition, which is an extraordinarily long time. But still, th- that made them ready. So I guess what I'm wondering is, it's going to need, the electorate's going to need to believe that it's time for change and on a schedule that's ahead of the way Manitobans, Gary, as Gary likes to say, Manitobans don't like bold, they don't like, they don't like, you know, fast, they don't like, you know, quick change. Uh, So, like, you've mentioned a number of issues here and predominantly healthcare, Mm -hmm. Uh, you know, is, is that really, is that the trump card? Is that what begins, like starts the, the winds of change to blow? Because once the winds of change blow, uh, you know, anything's possible. Well, we also need to have an answer on the question of the economy too, I would say. Yeah. So for sure, we're going to talk healthcare a ton and we'll, we'll continue to do so. But I, I also want Manitobans to understand our vision for the economy. And, you know, um, what I would say to the characterization that you're attributing to Mr. Dewar, I think Manitobans are responsible. And that, you know, factors into we need to be responsible with the economy. But also, Manitobans being responsible, I think they would say the responsible thing to do right now is to change government. This government failed our province multiple times, particularly during the pandemic. And now with the exodus of talent, both from the elected ranks and from the staff side of things, there is a legitimate question of who is left to actually steer the ship and run a government properly in this province. And I think... The daily um, mix-ups that you see from the PCs right now are testament to the fact that they're falling down on the job of just being a responsible, effective government in Manitoba. So for us, you know, a big part of what we have to do is, yeah, just let people know that we're serious, we're responsible, we got a vision for healthcare, but also we're going to be balanced with the books and strong when it comes to the economy. Because, you know, my fundamental principle politically is the economic horse pulls the social cart. The economic horse pulls the social cart, meaning, yes, we have a ton of people on our team with great ideas for social initiatives and how to reform healthcare. But those things happen if the economy is functioning as well as it could be, and it's creating an equal distribution or an equitable distribution of wealth through the society by creating good jobs for people across Manitoba. 
And so these are some of the things that I think we've got to uh, continue to talk about yeah. because not only is seven years uh, not a long time in terms of the historic pattern of governments changing, but speaking from experience, if you want to get a- out across this big province and talk to people and let them know what your ideas and your vision are, then yeah, that is something that takes yeah. time. So we'll be doing a lot of that Definitely this year. some strong solutions because, and uh, I guess, you know, disclosing, mm-hmm. I've been on strike twice in the, my short career as a professor at the University of Manitoba, and it's been in large part due to uh, a very uh, combative relationship between uh, the union at the university and uh, and the provincial government. Mm-hmm. Not the administration at the University of Manitoba as much. Uh, in fact, the court claims that our union has for that. Um, it it, the, the situation of labor is very uh, dire in lots of segments of the economy, and I think that there's a there's certainly a relationship that's going to take a long time to fix. It really doesn't matter what party I think is in charge. It's going to take a long time to fix those relationships between labor and the And I think that's government. a true statement, not just of what's happening with the workforce, but also in healthcare and in education. Like Some of the challenges that we're looking at right now are going to take years to fix. Mm-hmm. And so part of, I think, the challenge of, you know, our party this year is to one be able to come up with a a vision and the solutions that are needed right now but also to have the capacity and the horsepower to be able to respond to whatever bombs are waiting there Mm -hmm. that are not currently known to the public right now in our hospital system or in our post-secondary system on infrastructure to be able to manage and, and deal with those potential uh, emerging issues. Uh, and then perhaps most importantly, to actually deliver on them. Because everyone can make a press release. Everyone can do an announcement. Mm-hmm. But I think one of the things Manitobans have grown frustrated with is who can actually do these things that people are talking about. And I think we've seen a, la- a lack of follow-through and a lack of engagement towards actually delivering on the things that the people in this province want. So. Kind of a, a behind-the-scenes uh, answer a little bit, but I do think that that organizational capacity, that horsepower, the ability to de- deliver, I think that's going to be mm-hmm. very, very crucial to uh, our, p- our potential success. Well, I, I think the, uh, the word truth has been thrown around a lot today. I think we can agree <laughs> that uh, the truth has come up quite often. So I'll, I'll tell you that the only ultimate truth I can see at this point, parenthetically, as an opinion writer, I do not predict the outcome of elections. I yeah. think it's bad for business as an opinion writer. The truth is that we will know sometime before October <laughs> or by October of this year who the next government will be. That That's is right. my, my great truth. But what about the Super Bowl? No. <laughs> <laughs> well, our big question that, you know, the theme of this podcast has been, and our final question for you is, uh, raisins or no raisins? You have to take a stand now. There is, it's a, it, this is a big moment in your political career. Well, I mean, I, I've been clear since day one about my stand on raisins. And while the PCs have fallen down on the job of ensuring <laughs> oh. an adequate supply oh, of raisins uh, throughout the province, rest assured that Wap Canoe and the Manitoba NDP supports raisins, whether that's in your raisin brand, your raisin uh, bread, or your rice pudding. And we will ensure that we get a fair deal from Ottawa. We will go fight Ottawa on your behalf and bring back the raisins (laughs) to Manitoba. This is a big pivotal moment. They're going to look back in history on this moment. I have to call the news desk and let them know we've got uh, breaking news on raisins again. Yeah, there we go. Actually, I I can't tell you how tired the news desk is (laughs) that we're still talking about raisins. 
<laughs> so, uh, hey, Wob, thanks for coming in and doing this and, uh, you know, uh, talking about yourself, which we apparently found out today you don't like doing. Yeah. But, uh, but you know, uh, and talking about the state of uh, everything. Well, thanks and, so much you know, for uh, looping me into the uh, burgeoning podcast empire that uh, uh, you're building here. It's great to have you on the trail. So miigwech for coming miigwech. on uh, the Negon and Lone Ranger podcast. And we hope that you come back. By the way, can I say that like the column you wrote was hilarious where you're like, first off, <laughs> the title was Negon's idea. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, it but was uh, a late uh, night when we came up with yeah, that. Yeah, but it, and all that stuff about how all of Negan's friends and family thought it was hilarious and all of my friends and family were mortified is absolutely true. <laughs> like it was my, it, until I told my, my, I have a 22 year old son and then and a 19-year-old daughter, until I told them that Negan had given the, the big thumbs up, they weren't going to talk to me anymore. Oh, yeah. <laughs> they just, they were mortified. So, whew, that was bullet dodge there. So, yeah. yeah. All right. We got you for coming. Thank you. Right. And that brings us to an end of the podcast for this week. Uh, tune in next week uh, when we have a feature interview with uh, my good friend and colleague, uh, someone who I met uh, last summer, uh, Jane Philpot, former minister uh, of course, uh, long-standing uh, health person, person who worked in healthcare, and then of course, uh, most notably known for the SNC Lavalin uh, uh, scandal that uh, ended up with her leaving the uh, Trudeau government a uh, number of years ago now. Uh, yes, a number of years ago now, but an event that uh, still resonates through federal politics, especially when you think of current events. Uh, we want to say a big miigwech and thanks to CJNU and our producer, Adam, uh, as usual, for doing great works and editing the podcast and getting it up uh, on the site. Our uh, great friends at the Free Press, including editor Paul Samin, who uh, continues to support the podcast in different ways and all the great people who are over at the Free Press. Too many to mention that uh, end up with uh, putting us on the site and listing us on the front page and doing all those other great things. So big thanks to everybody at the Free Press and a huge thanks I don't think we ought to thank our families enough for supporting us to do this work. Uh, yeah, uh, Danielle and the kids, thanks for still being with me. If it wasn't for you, I wouldn't have any friends. <laughs> well, I'll be your friend, but okay. I, I don't know if I'll keep you warm at night. Okay, yeah, fair enough. Uh, to my, uh, of course, my daughter Sarah and all my family, and uh, I, I have tons of family that would take us another hour to list them all off but a huge thanks to all of them for supporting us through this and uh, thanks again for uh, unveiling the scandal of our ages earlier in the podcast oh yeah raisins yeah the debate that will continue and yeah and maybe we should find out what kind of raisins will our net likes oh jeez <laughs> <laughs> all right on that note thanks everybody miigwech